I'm Ty Wyckoff, and this is the Millennial's Guide to This Historic Moment. did not create most of the conditions and the convictions which have led us to this day. But this generation has a responsibility to resolve them. I come out of the Democratic Party, which in this century has produced Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, and which supported and sustained these programs which I've discussed tonight. Mr. Nixon comes out of the Republican Party. He was nominated by it. And it is a fact that through most of these last 25 years, the Republican leadership has opposed federal aid for education, medical care for the aged, development of the Tennessee Valley, development of our natural resources. I think Mr. Nixon is an effective leader of his party. I hope he would grant me the same. The question before us is, which point of view and which party do we want to lead the United States? As far as what experience counts and whether that is experience that counts, that isn't for me to say. Uh, I can only say that my experience is there for the people to consider. Senator Kennedy's is there for the people to consider. As he pointed out, we came to the Congress in the same year. His experience has been different from mine. Mine has been in the executive branch. His has been in the legislative branch. Abraham Lincoln came to the presidency in 1860 after a rather little known session in the House of Representatives and after being defeated for the Senate in 58 and was a distinguished president. There is no certain road to the presidency. There are no guarantees that uh, if you take a one road or another that you will be a successful president. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? That was the 1960 debate between then-candidates Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. It is widely known as the first televised presidential debate. And that's partly true. Four years earlier, the actual first televised presidential debate occurred when incumbent President Dwight Eisenhower was running for re-election against the Democrat Adlai Stevenson. Instead of the candidates themselves, two of the most iconic women in American history stepped in as proxies for the men. That's right, they had the women fight their battles for them. Or, as my mother would say, typical men. In Eisenhower's corner was then-Republican Senator Margaret Chase Smith, who years earlier famously delivered the Declaration of Conscience speech, a response to then-Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy's infamous anti-communism campaign. Smith went up against Stevenson's stand-in, former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Eisenhower, of course, won and was re-elected in 1956. But four years later, when he would term out of office, the Republican Party would nominate Eisenhower's vice president, Richard Nixon. It is a well-known story that Americans' opinions at the time of the Kennedy-Nixon debate were shaped by whether or not they heard it on the radio or watched it on TV. Nixon had injured his knee a month or so before the debate, which then became infected, and he needed treatment. So by the time we see him on the debate stage, he looks... sickly. He's lost a lot of weight, he's sweating, he chose not to wear makeup. Going into the debate, Nixon led Kennedy by six points in the polls. Following the debate... Polling put Kennedy at a narrow one-point lead. So all this seems to bolster this idea that, 
how you tuned into the debate, radio or television, determined who you thought won. People who listened on the radio thought Nixon won, so this theory goes, and those who watched on TV thought Kennedy won. And I think that's partly true, that the polling at the time has been criticized for sample bias, such as the kind of demographics of people who owned TVs at the time versus those who just had radios. Either way, John F. Kennedy would go on to win the election by one of the narrowest margins in American history and become 35th president of the United States. Debates, like speeches, are a candidate's opportunity to connect with a nationwide audience. Now, whether we like it or not, debates are not won on facts. They aren't won on being right. Now, a lot of Americans like to say that they only care about policy, but that's hardly ever actually the case. Most Americans do, and they should, care about policy. But as human beings, we also care about how candidates make us feel, consciously or unconsciously. So presentation means everything here. Because if there is any truth to the TV versus radio theory of the 1960 debate, which I think there is, it's because on television, Kennedy looked relaxed, he was confident, and he seemed in control. Which brings us to what happened just the other night. On Tuesday, incumbent President Donald Trump went face-to-face with former Vice President Joe Biden for the first 2020 presidential debate? Are, 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 we, are we calling it that? Did you use the word smart? You graduated either the lowest or almost the lowest in your class. Don't ever use the word smart with me. Don't ever use that word. I, I want to make sure. You graduated last in I, your class, not I, first in your I, class. <laughs> I want to make Mr. sure. Mr. President, can you let him finish, sir? No, he doesn't know how yeah. to do that. Even Mr. President, who testified under oath. So let me ask oath. you this. Henry, no, no, oath. go ahead, Mr. Every, I'm listening to you. Yeah. Wait a minute. You get the final word. Mr. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. Excuse me. This. Hey, hey this let me person. just say, vote now. You're pack the Make court? sure you, in fact, let people know he doesn't you're want a senator. I'm not going to answer the question. Why because, would you answer that because question? Because the you question is, the question is, who is on your list? Trump's goal here was to rattle Biden. My son was in Iraq. He spent a year there. He got, the, he got the Bronze Star. He got the Conspicuous Service Medal. He was not a loser. He was a patriot. And the people left behind okay. there were heroes. Really? And I resent Are you talking like about hell. Hunter? Are you talking about I'm Hunter? I'm talking about my son, Bo Biden. You're talking I don't about know. I don't know, Bo. I know Hunter. Yeah, Hunter, you know got thrown, Hunter got thrown out of the military. He was thrown out, dishonorably discharged. That's not true. It wasn't cocaine use. And he didn't have a job until you became vice president. Once you None became of that vice president, true. he made a fortune in Ukraine, in China, in Moscow, that is simply and various not other places. True. He my made son, a fortune. Gentlemen, my son. And he didn't have a job. My son, like a lot of people, like a lot of people we know at home, had a drug problem. He's overtaken it. He's, he's, he's fixed it. He's worked on it. And I'm proud of him. But why I'm was proud he my son. There was a great article Politico put out last week that I'll link for you in the show notes. But basically, it talks about the Trump campaign strategy going into the debate. And that was primarily to do whatever Trump could do to trigger Biden into stuttering. Yeah, I know, it's a little gross. But politically, it's also very risky. If it's not done right, and it's too obvious, then you risk looking like a bully. It has to be done with subtlety. So it's a really good thing that the Trump campaign's candidate is a master at... (laughs) I'm sorry. I couldn't even do that one with a straight face. Mr. President, your campaign agreed to... Both sides would get two-minute answers uninterrupted. Well, your, your side agreed to it, and 
Why don't you observe what your campaign agreed to as a ground rule, okay, sir? He never keeps his word. He can't do it. It's going to create thousands and millions of jobs, good paying jobs. But let him finish, sir. He doesn't know how to do that. Now, a lot of people have been criticizing Wallace for being weak here, for losing control. But I think that's pretty unfair. We're talking about Donald Trump here, after all. There really is no way someone can control that. Now, the Nonpartisan Commission on Presidential Debates announced the following day that they were going to add more controls to bring a sense of order to the debate, which might include the moderator being able to turn down mics if the candidates are breaking the rules. And I think we can all agree with that. Now, I'm not saying that Joe Biden is a saint here, or that he had a perfect performance, or he didn't have his moments of throwing mud. But this narrative coming out of the media that it was both sides that made this debate a dumpster fire is A, a bit of a stretch, and B, completely unfair to dumpster fires. Now, all Biden really needed to do in this debate was not get angry. For the most part, he held. Biden was trying to strike a balance between his base voters, moderate Republicans, like suburban voters, and the left of the Democratic Party. It got dicey at certain points, such as when he tried to pivot out of answering a question about packing the Supreme Court. Now, I think Biden's team would be wise to come up with a solid answer to this question by the next debate. It's not going to go away, especially with everything happening on the Supreme Court. But where Biden performed the best, in my opinion, were the moments that he directly addressed the public. He knew it was a deadly disease. What did he do? He's on tape as acknowledging he knew it. He said he didn't tell us or give people a warning of it because he didn't want to panic the American people. You don't panic. He panicked. You folks at home, how many of you got up this morning and had an empty chair at the kitchen table because someone died of COVID? How many of you were in a situation where you lost your mom or dad and you couldn't even speak to them? You had a nurse holding a phone up so you could, in fact, say goodbye. You would have lost far how more many people. people? To be this is the same man it's who all told set you up. by Easter this had be gone away. By the warm weather, it'd be gone. Miraculous. Like a miracle. And by the way, maybe you could inject some bleach in your arm and that would take care of it. This is the that same man. That was said sarcastically. You know that. I, I 40,000 people a day are contracting COVID. In addition to that, about between 750 and 1,000 people today are dying. When he was presented with that number, he said, it is what it is. Well, it is what it is because you are who you are. And of course, there's Donald Trump doing something that's just stupid. I mean, it's not hard to imagine someone who just lost a loved one to COVID-19 listening to the former vice president here, who himself has a tragic amount of experience with grief, just to hear Donald Trump chime in with, eh, it could have been more. Overall, be it because elections are always about the incumbent, Donald Trump can't control himself even when it's in his best interest, or both, Biden's errors were ultimately drowned out by Donald Trump. Is it true that you paid $750 in federal income taxes each of those two years? I paid millions of dollars in taxes, millions of dollars of income tax. And let me just tell you, there was a story in one of the papers. Show I paid, I paid $38 million one year. I paid $27 million Show us your tax returns. I went, uh, you'll see it as soon as it's finished. You'll see it. After the New York Times released a massive report on Donald Trump's taxes over the weekend, we of course knew this would be a new topic at the debate. Now there are a lot of opinions out there and quite frankly, the right just isn't doing a good job of forming a counter message. The best they've got is this idea that Trump doing something unruly is because the law allows him to. Now here's the thing. The problem with Donald Trump's taxes is not that he didn't pay his taxes. 
Yeah, sure, he found some loopholes, but we're all incentivized to minimize our tax obligation. I don't think that's a great argument to excuse that, but that's not my problem here. The first thing is that for years, Donald Trump has used the excuse that his taxes are under audit, so he can't release them until the audit is over, which A, isn't true, but B, have you ever wondered why his taxes were being audited? It appears now that we know. When he got a $72 million refund from all the taxes he paid in previous years, the IRS suspected that refund was obtained illegally. So that's my first problem. There's a difference between finding loopholes in the system and tax fraud. Secondly, and most importantly, Donald Trump is broke. What this info about his taxes shows us is that he's been surviving on credit and owes over $400 million in loans. Now, because tax documents don't show us, the big question here is, who are the lenders? Because it's a question of national security. That's why for most security clearance credentials in the U.S., you can't have massive amounts of debt. It leaves you vulnerable to being leveraged. Also, again, he's broke. We can see now loss after loss and failed business after failed business, and never actually recovering from his losses. So if you're one of those 2016 Trump voters who just wanted to see the government run like a business, I don't necessarily fault you for that. The idea that the government should be run like a business has some merit to it. I don't entirely agree with it, but that's fine. I would just ask that next time be a little bit more specific. A business but not one run by Donald Trump. As for the debate, however, the night only got worse for the president. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what are you what are you, you look, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Supremacists and right you like me to white supremacists and right boys. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right his wing own, problem. This is FBI a left wing. This is a left wing. OK, so I see where things got confused here. And this is a tough question to answer politically. So I'm going to try to give the president an example of how to do this. Now, this takes particular skill, so I'm going to do my best here. So let's hear the question again. And I'll answer the way I think the president should have answered it. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists? Yes. I mean, seriously, is this one really all that hard? This is the easiest question in politics to answer. And are you really convinced that your base is so racist that if you condemn white supremacy, they're all just going to drop you? I mean, let's be honest here. Even if that were true, Donald Trump's base isn't going anywhere. They've stuck it up this far. And there's almost nothing that he says or does that makes him blink even twice. So politically speaking, I'm just baffled. This is easily going to be the part of the debate that gets talked about the most. Now, of course, it's also morally despicable that the president is actively calling on these groups to, quote, do something about Antifa, a threat that has never been backed up by any evidence, and his own FBI claims that the real domestic terrorist threat are the white nationalist groups that he's revving up. But then I'm urging first. my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully 
because that's what has to happen. I am urging them to do it. But I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair You're election, what? I am 100 percent on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. Now, I know a lot of people are concerned about Donald Trump cheating to try and win this election. But I don't think that's what's happening. He isn't cheating to win. I think he's cheating to lose. The electoral situation for the president right now is bad. He has a pathway in the electoral college to still win, but it's growing narrower by the day. And this race has been remarkably stable. It's been steady in favor of Biden. Now, Trump has closed in on Florida, and that appears to be largely Cuban-Americans who respond well to his anti-socialist message. So that's a community that Biden would be wise to start talking to specifically, because A, Donald Trump still has a significant chance of winning Florida if he can keep Cuban-American voters, and B, it's in Biden's best interest to win Florida. Because Trump can still win without Florida, but it's significantly more uphill. He would have to win all three of the deciding states that he won in 2016 that gave him the election, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and additionally pick up another state like New Hampshire or Minnesota. But Trump won those first states by a razor-thin margin, and currently he is behind in all of those states and outside of the margin of error. Biden leads him by four or more points in every single one. Now, I think Trump might have a better chance of flipping Minnesota, but he needs to focus resources, and quite frankly, the Trump campaign is hemorrhaging money right now. And if you're spending resources on states you should already have in your back pocket, like Arizona or Florida, then you're on the back foot, and it's likely too late. The point is, is that Donald Trump likely knows that he very well may lose. Again, anything is possible, and he does have pathways, especially if he keeps Florida. But it appears that his best bet at this point is to sow distrust in the results of the election. Trump has already refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power if he loses, saying that he will only do that if the election is fair. Of course, he seems to believe that the outcome of a fair election would only mean that he would win. Now, sowing distrust in our election has massive consequences for the country. Both the ability to trust the results of an American election and even more so, more importantly, the peaceful transfer of power is the cornerstone of our democracy. Now, there are a million possibilities going into this, some of them very dark, and to be blunt, I'm disgusted that we're even having this conversation about whether or not an incumbent president of the United States is going to honor a peaceful transfer of power if he loses the election. Now, I'm not going to speculate about the different doomsday scenarios here. I'm not so sure that's productive. But there is one point that we need to keep in mind. What we need to be ready for is that this will not be like any other election. We're likely not going to know who wins for some time, and that could be a few days, that could be a few weeks. We are headed for not only the highest voter turnout in the modern era, but we are also looking at the highest number of votes by mail in American history. It's going to take time, and we need to be mentally prepared for that, no matter what Donald Trump says. Now, the other week, Donald Trump encouraged his supporters in North Carolina to, quote, test the system by voting twice, once by mail and once in person. I don't know how many people would actually do this, but if you happen to be a Trump supporter and you have happened to endure my show for this long, thank you. I appreciate it. I will say this. Voter fraud is very rare. But you should know why it is. It's really hard to do, it's nearly impossible to get away with, and it's severely punishable by law. 
so a few things to consider. All that said, the best thing that any of us can do in this situation is to vote, and vote in numbers that can't be denied. Now, it's clear to most of us after the first 2020 presidential thing that something needs to change. And I'm not talking about Trump right now, though we might as a country want to ask ourselves if we really want to keep doing this for another four years. But I'm talking about the way we approach politics in this country. We have to find a way to de-escalate somehow, and I'm not really sure what the answer is. But part of the problem seems to be the way that we see conflict. We think conflict is bad, so for the sake of civil discourse, we try to avoid conflict. But conflict isn't the problem. Conflict is good. Conflict is what helps us to grow and mature and become better people. It's the inability to engage with conflict that is the problem. Because it's easier to be violent than it is to have difficult and brutally honest conversations. It's easier to be violent than it is to admit when you're wrong. As one of my favorite writers once wrote, it's easier to die for one's beliefs than it is to question them. And I think that might be the first thing that needs to change. That we become a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty and a bit more courageous about admitting when we're wrong. And whether you buy that or not, there is one lesson we could probably take from that first actual televised presidential debate between Margaret Chase Smith and Eleanor Roosevelt when considering what might need to change here. Perhaps from here on out, we can set our standards a lot higher. In 2024, maybe both candidates need to be women. generation did not create most of the conditions and the convictions which have led us to this day, but this generation has a responsibility to resolve them.